Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. On April 10th, 1912, the RMS Titanic, which was declared to be unsinkable, set sail on its maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York City. Four days into its journey on April 14th, at 11.40 p.m., the ship struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic Ocean, causing the ship to sink within three hours. Tragically, approximately 1,500 of the ship's 2,200 passengers and crew members perished in the icy cold water. Hours later, the survivors were rescued by the RMS Carpathia and were brought to safety in New York City. Two of those survivors were a young mother, Leah Axe, and her 10-month-old son, Philip. Leah and Philip, who lived in England, were on their way to join Leah's husband, Sam, to start a new life together in the United States. In this episode, our guest is Leah's great-granddaughter, Shelley Binder. Shelley, an accomplished flutist and retired professor from the University of Tennessee, will share the story of her great-grandmother's terrifying experiences on that fateful night aboard the Titanic and its later impact on her life and the lives of her family. I'd now like to welcome Shelley Binder to our show. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you, James. Glad to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure for me because I have been interested in the Titanic story since I was a little kid. I think there was a movie called Night to Remember that might have been in the late 50s. I was born in 58, but I remember as a little kid watching that show uh, on the TV with my parents and asking them a lot of questions. And I even remember asking my grandparents and both of them who were 12 years old in 1912 recalled hearing about it, even as little kids in very rural areas of England and Ireland. Amazing. Yeah, it was it was huge all over the world. And of course, in England, because so many people, you know, either had a part in helping to build the ship or they were actually on the ship working. And so many people from, you know, Southampton. And of course, the ship was built in Ireland. So, you know, Ireland takes a lot of pride in that ship, in those three ships, the sister ships. Yes, definitely. So I'm, I'm tickled pink to have you as a guest on our show. So I'd like to start off by asking about you, Shelley. Where were you born and raised? And tell us a little bit about you and your education and what you have done and are doing for a living. Well, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and grew up here. And this is the town that my great-grandparents emigrated to from the Titanic. So we still live here. And I grew up until, I, I stayed here until I was probably, I think, 16. And then because I was so into music, I was sent away to the North Carolina School for the Performing Arts in Winston-Salem. I finished my high school degree there. And then I went to Cincinnati Conservatory. And then I actually took uh, some time off from music for a while. I actually uh, went to Vermont and studied with a, a master teacher there for one year in Vermont. But then after that, I took some time off from music and I actually worked with my dad in the insurance business for a couple of years. 
And eventually I kind of decided that what I really wanted to do was teach college. And so in order to do that, I needed a doctorate. So I decided to just quit and uh, went back to Virginia Commonwealth, got my master's in a year. And then I went to Florida State and got my doctorate. So after that, my first job was in a little school in North Central Wisconsin, Wausau, Wisconsin. A little bit far away from uh, Virginia, uh, right? It was very far. It was very cold. Yeah. The year that I was there was one of the coldest years on record. But I was only there for 10 months because then I was lucky enough to apply to get the job at the University of Tennessee. And amazingly, I, I won that job and, of course, then spent my, my whole teaching career at the University of Tennessee teaching flute. So, and that's in Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, I have gone online and I have listened to some YouTubes. I think they're YouTubes I listened to that, uh, and you do a wonderful job. You are a fabulous musician. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You play it with a lot of passion and uh, it's almost like an extension of yourself, isn't it? The instrument. Yeah, absolutely. It is a passion and uh, just an, an aptitude that I didn't ask for, but I'm glad I got it. So. Well, you definitely did. Shelly, your great-grandmother and your great-uncle were passengers on the Titanic. Yes, they were. Can you tell us about your great-grandmother and tell us about her life before that fateful trip on the Titanic? Okay, uh, she actually was born and grew up for about five years in Warsaw. At the time, it was in Russia. They called it Warsaw, Russia. It was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, of course, now they call it, it's in Poland. And in the late 1890s, there began to be a lot of anti-Semitism and pogroms. And so her older brother, Solomon, was afraid that he was gonna be conscripted into the Russian army. Uh, so he, he left uh, Warsaw and he went to London. He made his way to London where he as a young man, I think he probably was only 16, 17, worked and earned enough money, he actually brought his family over, his mother, his father, and his younger siblings. So that's how they got to London. And so they lived in the East End of London and she went to school there. And so I think her first language was Yiddish. And of course, you know, she grew up and studied in, in London. So her English was perfect and uh, that's her story. Now, your great-grandmother's name, her married name was Leah Axe. Correct. And what was her maiden name? Rosen, R-O-S-E-N, Rosen, Leah Rosen. Her father was a baker. So that was, and that kind of features in our family pretty prominently because my mother and my grandmother were amazing bakers, but that's my, her father was a baker. That was what he did in London. 
Are you a baker too? A very poor one, actually. You, you can't get all the gifts. No, exactly. I'll take it. Yeah. So tell us about what led up to your great grandmother being on the Titanic when it set sail on its maiden voyage. Well, it's an interesting story. She, my great grandmother, in the East End of London, met a young man in 1909 named Sam Axe. Now, he was very notable and very attractive. He was very tall and very strong. He was six foot three, which was very rare for a person in that time. And he had bright red hair and bright blue eyes. And he was uh, a real showman in every sense of the word. And uh, the two of them fell in love. So she was only probably 16 when they got married. And then they uh, had their first child, my, my uncle Phil, in 1911, in June of 1911. And my great-grandfather, he had a much more uh, exciting escape from Europe. Uh, he lived in, he, he was actually born very close to where she was. It's not very far, maybe, I think maybe 90 miles, something like that, in a village called Lodz or Woj, it's L-O-D-Z. And the programs were especially bad there. What happened was that around 1906, his father was killed. And so his mother had no way to support herself and she had young children. Um, and then she had these two teenage boys. So they literally set off across Europe to try to get the family out. That was the goal. And he was a young kid. He was maybe 15, something like that. And the way that they did this and ate and fed themselves and made it across Europe was that they boxed each other. They did boxing exhibitions. Was this a way they would earn some extra money and uh, sort yes. of build a name for themselves and make absolutely. more money? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And he was, he, he was always a showman. And so he finally made it to Hamburg. Now this journey across Europe probably took a year and a half, maybe as much as two years. He made it to Hamburg with his brother. They made it over to London. Okay. And then in 1908, he had enough money to follow his dream. And that was to get to the United States. He was very interested in automobiles. Automobiles were the new thing. And he wanted in on that. Really? Like as a mechanic or did he want to race them or everything about cars? What <laughs> Probably all of the above knowing him. But I think, you know, it was just something that grabbed his imagination. He just wanted to do anything he could with cars. I'm sure he didn't have um, access to them, probably. They were very poor. So he had it in his mind, you know, and, and that was what was going to happen. Come hell or high water. And I think just about both of those two things did happen. So him and his brother, Abraham, get on a boat, the Celtic, in 1908 to come to the United States. And they get to Ellis Island, 
his brother is allowed in, but he was denied because he had the chicken pox. Oh no. He had caught the chicken pox on the journey over. Oh no. So he was quarantined, was he, or just sent right back? Sent right back. Next day he was put right back on the Celtic and sent back to London. And he had, this was his dream. Okay. So think about how crushing that must have been to him. His brother got in, he didn't. So he goes back and that's, I mean, if he hadn't have gotten the chicken pox, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you right. because when he went back is when he met my great grandmother in 1909 and got married. So then he started working again, working again to make the money again, because he was coming back. He was coming back to the United States. And it was really interesting because along the way of my research, I run into this strange name, Axman. And it's undoubtedly him because it's on his wedding license. And I know it's him because it's got his actual father's name right. and my great grandmother's father's name and street address. But it says that their name is Axman, A-X-M-A-N. Uh, and then the other document is my great uncle's birth certificate from London. And in that, it refers to the family as Axman and the baby as Philip Axman. And then also the third document actually was the 1911 census in London. And that lists them as Axman. And, you know, of course, I still have cousins whose name is Ax. You know, when I brought this to their attention they were like i have never heard that name that is not our name I, we have no idea where this is coming from but i think uh what i realized is when he came back from the u.s the first time after being denied he decided or he had heard and i've heard this too that you couldn't come back into the united states with the same name if you had been kicked out i didn't know that so he decided that he was going to change his name so that he could come back. And in the end, instead of getting a boat from Southampton to Ellis Island to New York, he decided to go from Liverpool to Philadelphia. And of course, this was way before computerized records or anything like that. He came over on his own name, Sam Axe. I have the manifest. It was in September of 1911. He had finally earned enough money again. He had a young family. He had a baby who was three months old. My great uncle was born in uh, June. So he got enough money, came over under his own name. And that name, Axman, was never heard of again in any paperwork. And I have reams of it. Mm. And I think he did it just because. That was one level of determination that he would not be denied to get to this country. Wow. He was a determined guy. So he went back to England then. So he was back to plan B. He was going to get back in. So he, I guess he saved up some more money. The goal was, of course, to get his new wife and son over to the United States. So what happened next? So he worked as a tailor, I think, I found one document that listed that he was um, making like work pants in a machine machine shop. So he was sewing them. 
on machines. And of course he was always interested in machines and he was a mechanic, so he knew how to do that. And actually, I, I just wanna stop myself for one second and say that I've been doing some research on the name Axe, mm -hmm. and I did find his father's grave, and it is Axe. So there are some museums or Titanic museums that have it as Axeman. That was a phony name, that name that never was our name. Uh -huh. So I wanna, I wanna get that out there, that I have the gravestone in Europe and it was Axe. The name Axe means Axel. They made Axles. That was their family business. So I actually have been in contact with people there. And that's what AKS means, is they were Axle makers. So I just thought I would bring that up because that's further proof of the name Axe as being our actual family name. So when I think of the name, when we think of Axles, they, I would imagine, I'm not a mechanic, but they predate automobiles, that there were axles carts. used for carts and machinery, yes. right? Exactly. And well, I think they might have made carts. Right. So your great grandfather's he's working, he's earning some more money. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happened next? So he comes over on the kind of an inauspicious ship named the uh, Haverford in 1911. And he started working, sewing these pants on these machines to make enough money to bring over his wife and his baby. So he sends back that he can do this. He can bring them over. But I think her family did not want her to come. So they said, well, we don't want you to go on that ship. If you wait, if you agree to wait three months, we will make up the cost of the ticket and we will send you over on the safest ship ever built. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here it comes. A little bit of parental guilt there. So she did. She waited three months. And it was a turbulent time in shipping because right around that time that she was supposed to come, there was a coal strike. And so a lot of ships were shifted around people were put you know they bought a ticket on one ship on the white star line and they were moved to another ship because of this coal shortage uh because of the coal strikes and it lasted i think for 90 days and it was right around that time it eclipsed that time period so she went to southampton and she got on the ship with her baby um took the the train from waterloo station from london to southampton got off the boat train, got onto the Titanic in third class. And when she got on, she, it wasn't fully booked. So she was supposed to be in a cabin before. And the way they divided the cabins was that single men were in the bow of the ship. Okay. And then families traveling together in third class were in the center part of the ship and women and children traveling alone were in the, the uh, stern of the ship. Okay. So that's where she was and she was supposed to share a room, but there was nobody booked. So she had a room to herself, just her and the baby. Well, that's, I mean, that's a blessing. I'm from what I've ever read or heard or in movies I've seen, things weren't really the best for the third class passengers where they, well, not on a lot of ships, but the 
the, I think one reason why her parents were so eager to have her go on the Titanic was that improvements had been made to third class. And it was more like second class on uh, any other ship. Oh, really? And so third class was actually quite good on the White Star Line in 1912. So yeah, I think that was one of their considerations why they wanted her to wait. It was um, quite luxurious, even in third class, she had you know, a cabin to herself. It had a little wash basin in it. The food was very good. And uh, they had a public room where they had the party, the infamous party on Sunday night, which by the way, she was at, which when I saw the movie and then you read her account, which she sold to a newspaper, uh, she, she talks about the party and being at the party. Really? You're talking about the you're talking about the party in the movie Titanic. You got it. That big shindig that they had. That's right. That was an actual party. James Cameron was is a titaniac and he did a lot of research and he used a lot of the research that I actually researched also, which was Walter Lord's papers. You said the first movie you saw was A Night to Remember in 1958. Well, that movie came out in 1958, but he had been researching Titanic for a decade or more and had interviewed 85 living survivors, including my great-grandmother, and probably knew more about the ship and more accurately than anyone before or since. And so knowing how accurate and detailed Walter Lord's research was, that's pretty much why there are similarities between A Night to Remember and Cameron's movie in 1997. That's interesting. I mean, that party that uh, is in that movie, for, for the Cameron movie, that is more fresh in my memory, it's like the type of party, hey, I want to be at that party. Absolutely. <laughs> she had, Think about it. She was 18 years old. She had never been away from home ever. And now she's on this beautiful ship eating, you know, probably exotic food she had never eaten, which was also referenced in the movie. She's free. She, I think her parents might've been fairly strict. You know, she's with other young women traveling, emigrating with their babies. And she was having a great time at this party. And so, yeah, I mean, I, when I reread her newspaper uh, account, because a lot of Titanic survivors did that. You know, newspapers were clamoring, clamoring and at these people to give interviews. Mm -hmm. And so they offered to pay them for their story. You know, of course she didn't have a lot of money. So when she got to my hometown, Norfolk, she did an interview with the Virginian pilot. And she did several other interviews as well, but I've worked with a lot of Titanic researchers, Don Lynch, Bill Wormstadt, um, George Behe, and they all think that the account she gave on the 24th of April, 1912 in Norfolk, when she finally got here, was her most truthful, accurate one. And of course, you have to remember that this was the time of yellow journalism and 
people were just wholesale making up stories about the Titanic right and left. And so you read some of these articles and it's just, you know, wild. There was one article or a, an account from her, which I don't think came out of her mouth, but it was like, oh, the humanity and the stokers coming up at the last minute covered in black coal dust, you know, holding stoke irons and poke, you know, beating the children down and to try to get up the stairs. And that was very different from this other interview. And I think that it's, it's widely accepted that the one that she did here on the 24th of April was really what happened. And that's the one where she talks about being at the party on Sunday night and having such a great time. And then at about 10 o'clock, going back to her cabin, well, they kicked them out is what happened. Right. And this is the night of April 14th, 1912. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. She got kicked out of the, so the party was winding down. Right. And then what happened? So she went back to her cabin and got the baby ready for bed and she had her nightgown on and she wasn't really sleeping, but she was almost asleep. And someone knocked on her door um, in the article that I just referenced. I think she says around 1145, it, somewhere around there. Of course, the ship hit at 1140, so that's believable. And the woman must have been a young woman that she met and made friends with and said, do you know the ship hit something? And she said, no, 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 I didn't feel anything. I didn't hear anything. And she said, well, let's go up on the deck and just see what's going on. So, you know, they threw their coats on over their nightgowns and they went up three decks to uh, the well deck. And there was nobody. There was a couple crewmen that were standing there in their pea coats. And, uh, you know, it was a beautiful night, a spectacular moonless night. I mean, the two things that when you, I've read so many letters and accounts from survivors, hundreds, because I, I spent a week at Walter Lord's uh, library papers in London researching. They say the night was completely moonless. It was pitch black, but there were so many stars because there was no light. And it was just, breathtaking they had never seen anything like that because they of course be, living in london there are a lot of light there's a lot of light pollution so you never really saw the stars like that so and it was cold but they were just looking around and uh she asked the crewman is there any danger you know what happened he said nothing happened go back to bed go back to bed go to sleep and so they were just two young women and they were hung, hanging around in the in the well deck the aft well deck she went over to the side of the ship to look over and she saw a lifeboat in the water. Uh-oh, not good. Not good, <laughs> not good at all. Then around that same time, they started letting off the rockets, the white flare rockets. The flares. Right, they were white. Uh, they were supposed to be colored, but in any case, this is what they had. So they were shooting them off. And um, at that point, you know, they were still one of the only people standing out on the aft well deck. And then all of a sudden, the, um, they started to let off the steam through the whistles because, of course, they had built up this huge head of steam 
they were not racing, they were not speeding, they were not going at their top speed, they were not trying to make a record, period. I do not believe that in any way, but they were moving, they were booking it, okay? And they were going maybe like 21 uh, knots or something like that, hardly their top speed. But they had this huge head of speed uh, steam and they had to let it off or else they were afraid the boilers would explode. Right. So they start letting all the steam off, which made a huge racket because it was going through the whistles, the steam whistles. And it was so loud that, you, you know, you see it in, in the Cameron's movie too. People, you could just scream in someone's face and you couldn't hear anything, right. anything but those whistles. And that went on for 50 minutes, almost an hour, and it was deafening. And so at that point, they just looked at each other and went back down to the cabin, uh, got the baby. She said she dressed the baby and tried to put a life jacket on him, but of course it wouldn't fit. No. So then by the time they made their way back up the stairs, it was crowded and everybody was trying to get up the stairs. And so it was now suddenly harrowing. So they get up to the sea deck, the outdoor deck and it's chaos now and so there were two staircases that went from c deck to b deck at the top of those stairs there was a low gate it only went to your waist okay but it was locked it was locked for customs reasons not to keep people out okay if my life depended on it i could get over that gate and so sure. could she that wasn't the problem. The problem was that these two staircases were very small, narrow, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people trying to push their way up these two staircases. In the panic. In the panic, and it was a log jam. So they were you know, going up the stairs and coming to the top with the gates, and then they had to get over the gate. And it was taking a long time. So she said uh, they were just with women and children, other women and children in this well deck just hunkered down because they couldn't do anything. And some young crewmen looked down into the well deck from the deck house above on B deck and saw that there were all these women and children that were just helpless. So they jumped down using whatever they could there were two giant cargo cranes right they had these large housings and so you know maybe jumping on that and just she she said they were like uh, circus acrobat performers you know they probably jumped on the crane and grabbed it and jumped down and they were literally taking women and children up handing them man to man step on my knee step on my shoulder step on my head then you know lifting them to the next man up um and they lifted these they were very heroic they lifted these women out of third class so she had to go from the sea deck up and, and now i will tell you it's pitch black right no moon right uh, it's 27 degrees out and she's on a sinking ship and she's waiting her turn to go up, being handed up the system of, of uh, ladders, human ladders. Let me pause there for a second. I'm just trying to imagine you're 
18 years old, you're not just responsible for yourself, you're responsible for a 10 month old, your 10 month old baby. You've now got panic. You've got human log jams. You've got blasting emission of steam from the boilers and just chaos. And it's 27 degrees out and it's pitch black. What on earth could have been going through her head at that moment? You know, not to, not to cry, this always gets me. The one thing about the story is that she made the choice to fight to survive. She fought for it and how tough she must have been to make that decision, to step on that man's knee, to step on his shoulder with holding her baby, who by the way, was a big baby. He was 10 months old and the joke in the family is that he weighed 10 pounds when he was born. Mm -hmm. So at 10 months old, he probably weighed about 20 to 25 pounds. And she was a very small woman. She was barely five feet tall. And it had to have been, uh, well, obviously it was the most terrifying thing that anyone in my family in generations has ever suffered. I've never fought for my life. Have you ever fought for your life, James? No. She fought for her life and she fought for the life of her baby and she's 18 years old. I, I think about that in my life when I'm really having a hard time mm. and want to give up. And I, I have had those times. And I, I think about her at 1.50 a.m. on, you know, April 15th and that she didn't give up. And uh, that's why I'm here because my grandmother wasn't born until 10 months after, you know, so if she hadn't made it, I wouldn't have been here, but she, she fought for it and it couldn't have been easy. Oh, it must've been terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So, so what happened then? So she's, she's climbing this human ladder that's being made for her. Mm -hmm. What happened next? You know, I've been researching with these historians, which they have been, so unbelievably kind to me and they are to descendants i mean they they really are very protective of the ship and want to make sure that any story is based on reality and it's difficult because there's so many books and so many stories but it's not based on primary source research a lot of it's taken from this book which was taken from this book which the provenance of which is completely really unknown at this point. While I was teaching flute music in college, I had the, also had the opportunity to teach a course on the Titanic. So that's why I wanted to teach the class. I wanted to do this, uh, these experiments. In fact, Bill Wormstead actually came up to Knoxville from South Carolina to help me to make sure it was accurate. Right. So I wanted to see this. I needed to see it. So I set up, uh, I was going to use my the own students in the class and lift people nine feet. And the other decks were, you know, nine and a half feet. And the railing was like almost three and a half feet. But it was too dangerous, actually. Nine and a half feet is pretty scary, actually. Yeah. So I asked the cheerleading squad at my school. 
So we went onto the practice field and we got this scissor lift and we measured it out exactly. Uh, I told the cheerleaders, do not lift her. I got somebody who was five feet tall and small like her. And I said, don't lift her properly. Just imagine you're, <laughs> you know, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just trying to get this person to safety. So don't do it the right way. Don't do it the way you've been trained to do it. And they were just wonderful about it. And they really took it seriously. And uh, I bought a baby doll. It's, you know, it's easy to buy a baby doll who's a month old or three months old, but it's very difficult to buy a 10 month old baby doll. So I was determined for it to be accurate. So I bought some sand and I made Ziploc bags of sand and actually taped the sand around the baby until he weighed 20 pounds and um, elongated his legs and everything. And so this cheerleader had to carry him and she had a coat, a heavy wool coat on down to the floor. And, uh, you know, even just seeing it was so emotional for me because she had to go from C deck to B deck to A deck and then to the boat deck. And um, it's, it, it's also difficult because I've had a really good life, very easy life. I've never had to fight for anything like that. Certainly not my life. Exactly. And, uh, and she's also, the people who were helping her at that time, many of them really may not even thought they even had any hope themselves of getting off the boat. So they were doing this just to help another human being, particularly a young lady with a baby. These young men were very heroic. And I'm, I'm sure they knew they weren't getting in a lifeboat. They did it just as you said, just to you know be generous and kind and help somebody. So I think what happened when, I always told Bill Warmstead, he's a good friend of mine and Titanic researcher. And one of my favorite books is called On a Sea of Glass. If anybody wants a wonderful, all-encompassing book to read about the Titanic. It's absolutely phenomenal book. Um, I said, she always said she never let go of the baby. She never let go of the baby. I think losing sight of the baby was the worst thing in her mind that happened to her. Right. Even though in the end there was, it was a happy ending. I think losing him really crushed her mind. And so I think what happened was she was going up these deck house, the back of the deck houses. And at the top, you, you can't climb over holding a baby. You can't do it. We tried, we tried to do it in the experiments. So somebody had to take the baby when she put her foot on the deck so she could get across the rail. And she just always insisted reflexively, no, we went together. We, we did this together. We went up together. And Bill kept saying, no, this is impossible. You, and I didn't believe and believe him because I believed her story. But somebody had to take that baby so that she could go across the rail. Yeah. And uh, that's what it looks like when we did the experiment. So I think when she got to the top, it was very late in the sinking. And there were crewmen 
who were keep in mind too that the ship was listing so the lifeboats that remained were swung out farther away from the ship than normal they weren't hanging close to the ship and you could step in mm -hmm. they were hanging there because of the ship the listing of the, of the ship okay so, the listing was causing it to be further away from the ship yes. than normal which made it much more difficult to get into the ship into the, life the, the lifeboats i mean yeah and you know you look down 70 feet to the ocean and you have to step across you know three a meter or so or more and they couldn't make themselves do it so these crewmen were to get these women to go into the lifeboats they were taking their children and throwing their children into the lifeboats to another crewman and of course then they would do it uh, and they were throwing women in too so I think out of the corner of her eye, she saw him being thrown, but she couldn't see the lifeboat. So to her, it looked like he was being thrown overboard. Oh my gosh. She thought he had been thrown overboard. So now this tremendous will to survive is being crushed by the thoughts that perhaps her baby is now in the ocean what a fantastic way of putting it i mean that's that's just great that's exactly what happened it was the most extraordinary eight hours of her life she went from being on her own thinking about emigrating meeting her new husband 18 years old at this party having so much fun to fighting for her life and then losing the baby and now herself being you know pushed or shoved or thrown into a lifeboat and she said at that point, she didn't care anymore. She said she was like on the verge of a dead faint. That's how she put it. She didn't care anymore. Her baby was gone. It's un unimaginable her sitting in the lifeboat and just wondering, I guess, maybe not even wondering if, if her baby was alive, maybe convinced that he wasn't. I think she was um, pretty much at that point convinced that he was thrown into the sea. And uh, she said she didn't care if she lived. And when, it, also I will say, she lost a lot of her hearing because they floated in those lifeboats on the you know open lifeboats in the middle of the North Atlantic and it was very bitterly cold. And so cold can really kill some of your hearing. And so she, she had hearing loss from that. But when she got onto the Carpathia, she was completely despondent. Took to a mattress, I think that's the way she put it, because they had put mattresses down for, for third class and she was morose. And she had met a woman named Selena Cook and you know people were looking after her, trying to console her. And I mean, she was just inconsolable inconsolable and so eventually she's after a couple keep in mind this is something that i think needs to be i think uh camera needs to make a second part of this movie but it was almost as compelling being on the carpathia because as calm as the sea had been on the late uh, hours uh of the 14th and into the 15th they started to pick up. Okay, so the sea's now picking up. 
And when they were rescued, you know, they were, you know, being rescued in kind of a, a high sea um, and having to cl climb these, you know, cargo ladders into the Carpathia. And some women got on these bosun chairs and um, were, you know, hauled up. And, but she had lost some of her hearing. She was just completely morose. But when the next day it started storming, Oh, no. It, As if they hadn't been through enough, right? As if they hadn't been through enough. Exactly, right? I mean, they had been through this, and now all hell breaks loose. It's, you know, the seas are pounding. It's foggy. It's raining. There's lightning. And so he has to blow the foghorn every few minutes. And that, think about how she was tortured by that sound of that fog foghorn or those whistles being the steam being let off for 50 minutes and now every couple of minutes this is going off again and these people were just tortured and there were more than 70 widows i mean she was maybe i you know i try to put my mind there i think well at least she's not a widow because her husband is safe in norfolk waiting for her right but she's lost her baby but there were so many widows and so much sadness and so much grief. And now it's pouring, storming, and they have four days to get back to New York. Oh, I, I can only imagine with, with all the misery emotionally and then likely being seasick on top of that, uh, it must have been it must have been a dreadful experience. And this is all within a you know, a 12 to 24 hour period that your great grandmother's gone through all these emotions and physical strain and, and um, psychological pressure she was under. It, it is unfathomable. And I know it got you emotional before, but I, I think of it, you know, I have three daughters. I think of one of my daughters with one of my grandchildren and how they would have reacted and what they would have felt like. And it is very, very upsetting to think of that whole situation. Yes, uh, absolutely. And eventually, after a number of days, the weather cleared up. And this woman, Selena Cook, convinced her that she needed to get off that mattress and she needed to eat something and she needed to come for a walk on the deck. So she goes up with her and she's just walking like a zombie you know, on the deck. And out of the corner of her eye, she sees a baby craning his, his arms out to her. And she looks and it was her baby. Yeah. Wow. He knew her, he knew his mother, he was still breastfeeding, that was his mother. And so he's reaching his arms out toward her and she's like, oh my God, that's my baby. And the woman that had him was an older Italian woman and she said, no, it isn't. No, no, I'm not going to give you this baby. But I think the woman was doing it more out of concern. I mean, I'm not going to give this baby to anybody. Yes. Uh, so they were taken up to the captain of the Carpathia's cabin, Arthur Rostrand, my hero. And he was called to his cabin. Of course, all the officers of the Carpathia had vacated their cabins and given it to these first-class women who had lost their husbands. And in 
this cabin, in his cabin, were three society ladies. Okay, so this all played out in front of Madeline Astor and Eleanor Widener and Mrs. Thayer, who were staying in Arthur Rostron's cabin. So basically, he's now playing the part of Solomon, whose baby is this. Mm. And, um, you know, my great grandmother said, he's got a birthmark, he's got a birthmark on his, his chest. So, we're, I mean, you can see that, you know, we're all very freckly and, and stuff. And he did. So he said, okay, they checked. Sure enough, um, you know, it was there. And so I guess that was enough for this Italian woman. And uh, so she got her baby. And here are these three society women experiencing this scene out of the Bible. And that's when I think Madeline Astor said, your baby looks cold took off her scarf and wrapped it around the baby. And uh, that, that scarf stayed in my family until it was donated to the uh, Mariners Museum in Newport News. And then she also says that somebody gave her a $5 gold piece. One of these ladies gave her a $5 gold piece. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of money in 1912. The ladies, the, the high society ladies, had they lost their husbands? Yes, all three. Husbands went down with the ship. Correct. And they yep. were showing charity and um, compassion for your, your great grandmother. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So now yet another emotion has been piled on top of your great grandmother. Now joy. Yep. But still the trauma. Right. Still there, still rough seas. Yes. Uh, still away from her husband. Mm-hmm. And what happened next? I will mention too that the only way they could convey the names of the survivors was by wireless. And because it was storming and because the Carpathia was a much smaller ship, the wireless wasn't as powerful. So they were having a difficult time relaying to land the names of the people they had aboard. So they started with first class. And so my great-grandmother's family in London thought she was dead because they hadn't heard anything. Yeah, because they, you have to wait a long time to get through the list to get to third class. That's right. Mm. And then my great-grandfather, he didn't know either. And until, and I have the article from the newspaper where they sent a White Star agent to his tenement where he lived to tell him his wife and baby were alive. Finally, this was like, either late Wednesday or Thursday, the was the 19th, okay? And he was so aggrieved, he couldn't work, he couldn't do anything. So when this white star agent came to his place that he was living and told him, he fell off the porch and got a concussion. Oh, no. So I can see he was so probably frazzled after a week of waiting, it's, it's his wife and son coming over to join him in his, where he wanted to be his dream place. And he wanted to do this for many years. And all of a sudden his whole life was turned upside down. Right. Wow. So now he knows they're safe. Right. He knows they're safe, but he doesn't have the money to go up to New York because he hasn't been working. And the only way he had money was he worked every day. And then he got the money for working that day. 
So he had work for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. He had to wait to go up to New York until I think Monday. So he went up on the 22nd, but people were extremely kind. And you, know, you have to imagine too, she's stepping foot on a continent. She had no relatives on, knew nobody. She was an immigrant. She had no, no family at all except him. And so she stayed at the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They sheltered, I think, maybe, I think 49 people. But the Red Cross, the um, Red Crescent, there were all the aid agencies cared for people that didn't have a place to go. Right. And fed them and gave them clothes. And uh, of course, she, uh, I did find out she got $300 from the Red Cross. That's a lot of money, $300. Yeah. Yeah. So the also, you know, the Strausses who owned Macy's were on the Titanic and died. They died. That's in the movie. They show them, I think, together uh, hugging each other because she wouldn't get on the boat without him. And they went down together. Right. And he was offered a place in a lifeboat, but he wouldn't take it because he was too honorable. He said, I'm not getting in a lifeboat while there's still women on the ship. Right. They said, well, you're old, we'll let you in with your wife. He said, no, not, not while there's still women on the ship. I'm not gonna take a place in a lifeboat. Wow, man of character. Yeah. Definitely character. So when were your great-grandparents reunited and where? So on the 22nd of April, I actually went to visit New York and found the landing card that said that she had been picked up by her husband at like seven o'clock on April 22nd, and that a guide had taken them to the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got home. Um, she could have gotten home quicker by ferry. She didn't want to do that. Who could blame her? She didn't oh. want to get back on a ship. <laughs> Not at all. I don't blame her at all. So they took the, the railroad to Norfolk and that's how she and then on the 24th she had this she probably got home on the 23rd and then she had this um, gave this interview at the newspaper on the 24th. Wow so Shelly all the strain emotional psychological strain that uh, that happened to your great-grandmother that night the emotions up and down and the fear and all that stuff I understand that all took a big toll on her right after she was reunited with her husband. What did that look like at that time? Well, of course, you know, there wasn't a lot of mental health care available and the term PTSD wasn't, it really didn't exist. I think that was maybe came about during the first world war from shell shock. It was first called shell shock and then maybe evolved into PTSD. But, you know, it's really only one place you can go if you're having extreme mental anxiety and pressure and all of that. And that was to the hospital. And they had just built a new hospital called uh, St. Vincent's. Beautiful building. I think the building had been built in 1910. And uh, so she was in and out of that by her own admission, you heard it, you heard her say it. I did on the audio from 
Ripley's Believe It or Not. Exactly. And she was in and out for 10 months. And of course, you know, it must have been awful. I mean, she, I don't think she could really get a hold of her emotions properly or settle, you know. And uh, she had a toddler, you know, and then she became pregnant within three months with my grandmother. So now she's going to have another baby. And uh, so she was in and out of the hospital when she, which, you know, one of the stories and one of the things I regret the most about teasing my grandmother about her name, because my grandmother always thought her name was Sarah Carpathia, which my great grandmother was, you know, adamant. She told Captain Roster, and I'm going to name my next child after you to honor you for what you did. And Carpathia is a beautiful name. And so I think a testament to how truly tortured my great grandmother was, is that when my grandmother was born on her birth certificate, the nuns put Sarah Titanic acts. And I, it's not a funny story. I think she might've been slightly raving about you know, what happened and the ship and everything, I think it wasn't clear what she wanted to do. And that's what they wrote down. And so we joked my, uh, about this to my grandmother forever. I mean, it was just a family joke and I don't feel good about it now because she hated it. She hated that uh, her birth certificate said Sarah Titanic. And of course she didn't know this and she went by Carpathia her whole, whole life, including on her gravestone, it says Sarah C. Um, and of course I have her high school diploma, which says Sarah Carpathia and her wedding license and everything says Sarah Carpathia. But when she was going overseas and my grandmother needed a passport, she had to apply to the state capitol to get her birth certificate. So when it came in and she saw it, she was horrified. But, and of course it's all over the internet. You know, there's an, a, a baby was born and named Titanic. That's my grandmother, but it was not supposed to be Titanic. It was supposed to be Carpathia. Oh boy, that's um, you know, certainly not the name your great grandmother would have really picked out. Uh, by the time that finding the birth certificate um, and this, all of this was uncovered, she had already passed away. She never knew about the mistake. Um, but she would have been mortified and horrified and unhappy about it. Oh, sure. I, I wouldn't blame her, certainly. So your great-grandmother did come out of the hospital when your grandmother was born. And did she become well again, emotionally? Um, yeah. I mean, eventually she did, obviously. I, I don't know that it was right when she went home, I think she had no choice. I mean, my, her husband worked hand to mouth, so he had to work. He couldn't take care of a toddler and a newborn so that she could, you know, get the medical help she needed. I think, um, might've used some of the aid money that they got to bring over my great grandfather's sister to help. So there was help of the family did come some of her, you know, his family came over and helped. 
with the baby and stuff. So I think that was good. Of course, then my grandmother was growing up and then she had her third baby in 1915, my uncle Harry. And by that time, you know, the first world war is heating up. So then she has all of that to contend with. I think it's slowly normalized for her slowly over the years but she couldn't talk about it didn't want to talk about it as many 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 titanic survivors did not want to talk about it and then you say well you know she did this radio interview well that was how many years after i think it took her at least two decades before she could really put it in perspective right you know, by that time she had her children, that everybody was doing well. So she did come out of it eventually. And thankfully, Shelly, she didn't lose anybody. It is good that she came away with her child and came home to her husband. Uh, so there was some support even from her, from her sister-in-law to sort of get back on her feet, but it still must have taken a lot for her to emerge from that terrible night. Now, I understand from previous conversation with you that your great-grandmother was brave enough to get back on ships again. So what happened? So in 1923, one of my great-grandfather's sisters, Rose, became engaged. She was living with her brother and my great-grandmother in Norfolk for a time, Rose was, and she had kind of been betrothed to a man in London. So she needed to get back over for her wedding. So in 1923, Rose actually got on the Olympic and took it back to England. And of course, there were three sister ships that were identical or almost identical. It was the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. And so she actually got on the Olympic and went back for her wedding. And then a short time later in 1923, my great-grandmother and my grandmother, who was nine, wanted to go to the wedding. So of course, there's only one way to do that, and that's on a steamship. So they took a steamship to go to the wedding of her sister-in-law, Rose. And of course, she was marrying a man named Jack. The first time my great-grandmother crossed the ocean again after getting off the Titanic, she got onto a ship called the Leviathan and with my grandmother, who I have a, actually have a picture of my grandmother on the deck of the Leviathan. And they traveled to London to attend the wedding of Jack and Rose. Jack and Rose from the 1997 movie. That's, uh, that is a strange coincidence, isn't it? It's mind-boggling. I was um, I met with Don Don Lynch, and uh, I said, "You're never going to believe this, but I always had this beautiful wedding photo, you know, from the 20s." And I, who are these people? And I never really looked at the packaging for this photo because it came in like a this booklet. And I opened it, and it said, "To Sam and Leah, with loads of love from Jack and Rose, 1923." Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy. Shelly, your great-grandmother and great-grandfather went on to have then three children. There was your Uncle Philip. There was your Uncle Harry. And then there was your 
my grandmother. Your Sarah. grandmother. And what was your grandmother's name? Sarah Carpathia. Sarah Carpathia. That's right. So your uncle Philip, obviously at 10 months old, he didn't remember anything about what happened. But did he ever take an interest in learning more about that night? Did he ever talk about it? Did he ever reflect on what could have been or anything like that? Um, I have a lot of respect for him because he actually became um, very much a part of this local museum, the Mariners Museum, and creating an exhibit there of the Titanic and donated a lot of the stuff to the Mariners Museum. And he became quite a local celebrity. And also later then did the same thing with the Titanic Society, Historical Society. Um, and he, he went to several of their conventions. And of course, you know, having a Titanic survivor was a big deal for the Titanic Society. They loved that. And he loved going because they treated him like, you know, a rock star. <laughs> and um, he did. He went to several conventions. And uh, but he never I think I found I don't know how many articles that he gave to newspapers over the years. And he never embellished. He never he always said, I don't remember. I have no memories from it. So I think he was very honest about that. That's good, because as you said, people sometimes are only able to go back to these accounts, to what people said, maybe even years later. And yep. you can sometimes have false or exa exaggerated histories brought forward into the future. And, and you start building a house on sandy soil. It's not going to withstand the storms of, of facts, right? So I think it's good that he made known what he knew and, and said what he didn't know as well. So that's important that your great uncle did that. Absolutely. I have a lot of respect for him for that because, you know, he could have, I think the one thing is that he, there wasn't a lot of primary source research. And of course, you know, he was going a lot by what he read in books. Well, some of the books didn't do primary source research either, and they weren't accurate. And so occasionally he would pare it back something that was in hindsight now inaccurate, but it wasn't um, intentionally malicious. I mean, he was just, you know, he read it in a book or whatever. Right. Or else he heard it maybe from his mother. Yeah. Maybe. Or... Um, I don't think that they talked about it a lot. I don't think she talked about it a lot. I think you have to keep in mind too, though, by 1953, she had been invited to the premiere of the Titanic movie, not Walter Lord's movie, but there was an earlier movie in 1953, which is a wonderful movie. If you haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. It had Thelma Ritter in it. And uh, she, of course, she has some of the best, most hilarious lines ever. And so my great grandmother in 1953 did travel to New York City, which was a big deal. Keep yeah. in mind, my family owned a junkyard. So, I mean, this was quite exciting, a lot, a lot more exciting than the junkyard. And I have pictures of them, press pictures at this premiere for this movie. And she has a wonderful photo with her and Thelma Ritter, the actress. So that was, that was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. And then she was supposed to go to, you know, she had this relationship with Walter Lord 
and was supposed to go to the premiere of the 1958 movie, A Night to Remember, but my uncle Harry had had a heart attack. So she couldn't go. She went to be with him in Washington instead. Well, you mentioned uncle Harry. I think you've told me that uncle Harry was in the second world war and that he had some bad experiences on boats as well. Can you kind of briefly tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, he was on the USS Elliot at Guadalcanal and uh, he was a dentist actually. So he was the ship doctor on the USS Elliot. And of course it was hit and sunk at Guadalcanal in this huge fiery conflagration and, and so many men died, it was horrible. And eventually when it was determined that they couldn't save the ship, you know, he was one of the last ones. It was just the last like five or seven officers and they were ordered to jump off the ship, which he had to do. So he had to abandon ship in Guadalcanal in this conflagration of fire and everything. And it's just such an exciting story about floating around in the water until eventually they were picked up. And he spent quite a bit of time on a, on a hospital ship. Did he really? And now, do you prefer air travel yourself? I love ships. <laughs> I grew up at the ocean, um, you know, near the ocean, Atlantic Ocean. Love it. Grew up sailing. I've taken several cruises. I figure, what are the odds? I think if anybody's afraid of going on a ship, they should just take me because the odds are astronomical against another, you know, cruise ship. Although the Titanic wasn't really a cruise ship. It was a more of a transport ship, immigration ship. But yeah, I think the odds are low. So I, I, I love the water. And you know, what's interesting is that I inherited my great-grandmother's photo album and my grandmother's and my mother's. And there are hundreds of pictures of her at the beach with her children. Aww. And she not only went in 1923 on the Leviathan and then came back on the Majestic, she went in 1938 to see her family again in London aboard the Queen Mary. Really? And I actually, the Queen Mary is the only steamship of the time that still exists. And it's a hotel exhibit and it's lodged in Long Beach, California. And you can go and stay on it. And I did that two years ago. And I have a publicity picture. I don't, James, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise ship, but they like, they come by and take your picture. You know, if you're in the bar, if you're at dinner or whatever, and then they try to sell you a copy of it. Right. Well, I have the professional tourist photo of my great grandmother from 1938 sitting on the Queen Mary. Oh, cool. And so I redid that photo. I went to the Queen Mary. I had contacted them earlier. I said, look, my great grandmother was on the Titanic. And then, you know, she eventually traveled on the, the Queen Mary and had this photo taken can you identify where the photo was taken on the ship? And so they did. And when I got there, they were very kind. They took me to the, the place, this second class lounge. And I sat down in a chair in front of that pillar and redid that photo myself. Oh, how cool is that? That is so cool. Yeah, she, um, I even have pictures of her, other pictures of her on the ship. And I think my great-grandfather, who was, as I said, a showman and had quite a sense of humor, I think 
that he thought it was funny to take pictures of her in front of what before she traveled in front of the lifeboats. Mm-hmm. So I actually have two pictures of her. And the other one is uh, the Queen Elizabeth because she went in 1951. But she wanted to see her family. She had no choice but to get on a boat. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, well, they say, you know, you fall off a horse, you get back on it again. She got back on it in 1923 and she stayed on it. Yeah, she did. So I think it was a rocky start in this country. Very rocky, I think, you know, it is a crazy story. I mean, everything she went through, then they had the First World War and, you know, starting this family. Then I have to tell you, I don't think I told you this before, but in my research, I found much more in the newspapers about my great-grandfather than my great-grandmother. And this shocked me. In 1929, they were going to New York City, I guess just on an excursion train, and it crashed. My grandmother was on it too. And 11 people died. 11 people died on this train, excursion train. And who gets their picture on the front page of the newspaper? My great granddad in a wheelchair. He was okay. He kind of hurt his spine a little bit, but he was okay. And then- No kidding me. Yeah, it's crazy. And then in 1931, there was a whole bunch of hoopla about a dead body who was found in the in the junkyard in a junked car had been shot five times they had nothing to do with it but somebody you know dumped a body in the in the junkyard and it was quite the you know the talk of the town and this goes on and on and on of course then my uncle harry going down with the uss elliot in guadalcanal and they had quite the interesting life together then she got to go to New York several times, you know, to meet Robert Ripley to do this radio interview. She got to go to New York again to go to the the premiere of the Titanic movie. She would have gone to the A Night to Remember premiere, but she couldn't. She had quite an interesting and exciting life. And it, I think overall, in the end, it was um, a very good life. I I like to joke around that she came over on the Titanic but she ended her life on the Mayflower because that was the last place she lived was on the Mayflower street. There's so many coincidences and unbelievably crazy stories about my family. Mayflower street. Is that, that was the name of the street she lived on? I actually think I mean the street that they finally ended up on when they actually had you know, their, their kids were married and successful and um, the junkyard was doing well. They had a house on Colonial Avenue in Norfolk. And uh, when they eventually sold that house and were like in an apartment, it was the Mayflower. The Mayflower. Yeah. That's cool. Now, Shelly, your great grandmother died when you were how old? Seven or eight. Do you remember much about her? I don't remember a lot, but I have a couple of really, really strong memories. One of them is making these knot-shaped cookies in her kitchen on Colonial Avenue. I just have such fond memories of that, Um, like baking with her. Of course, baking was a big thing in their family. 
of course my great-grandfather I he was alive until I was like 12 but he was such a character I remember one of the when we were really little he gave us a chick and we called it bunny duck it grew up to be a fighting cock really yes so it, it was keeping the neighborhood awake so we had to give it away but then I remember they were babysitting me and my sister and my sister has the same memory and somehow my grandfather my great-grandfather thought it was a good idea to take us to see a professional wrestling show <laughs> and i remember the smell so well walking into that arena and you know the cigar smell and the sweat and just i'm sure they just got in so much trouble for doing that but they they were supposed to be babysitting us and they took us that's where they were probably going that day. But he was, you know, such a character. He was always into boxing. And then he got into the early days of professional wrestling. And, um, but I think she had her hands full with him because he was such a character. Yeah, but boy, was she tough enough to take him on. I'm sure she was. And yeah, I, I can't help but think that your great grandfather had a strategy that if you're trusted to watch the kids, and you take them to professional wrestling with all the cigar smoke that maybe you'll never be asked again to do it. <laughs> I think you might be right. But, uh, exactly. He was, he was always so fun and he sang songs in Yiddish and he, he was a bon vivant. He lived life and you know what? He got his way. He wanted to get to this country and get his family here. And he did it. He, it wasn't pretty. Think about him. He came over and was sent back. And then his wife, he thinks they're just, this saga is just over. And she gets on the Titanic. It's craziness. Tough people. I did want to dial back a little drop. When your great-grandmother was on the lifeboat before she was rescued on the night of the sinking, did she ever mention any recollections of, number one, seeing the boat actually sank, the Titanic sank. And did she have any recollections of the orchestra playing while the ship sank? Um, if she did, she didn't mention it. The one thing I don't know, I don't know what cabin she was in. Yeah, I don't know if she saw the ship sink or break up. I have no idea about that. She did not mention any of that. Mm, so sure. I, I don't know. She was preoccupied with her own grief at the time. That's all she could probably think about. But yeah. just on a side note, on the orchestra, we see in the movie, in the 1997 movie, I don't recall the night to remember too well, but it may have been on that movie as well. But the orchestra is playing while the ship is sinking and they continue to play very close to the end. You are a musician. What do you think was going through the minds of those musicians as the ship was sinking and they were playing? I get asked this a lot because I am a musician. And if it were me, you know, a lot of people during the sinking, they were trying to find their family. So they all wanted to be together. And, and so that's what they did. And you read letter after letter. These musicians, all eight of them, they didn't have any family on the Titanic. So these eight were their family and they were tight they were you know a tight group and the youngest was only 23 
And I think the oldest, Wallace Hartley, was only 41. I mean, these were young men. Young men, yeah. And so I can imagine if it were me, um, the first thing I would want to do is get my instrument out of my cabin because I might survive and I would want it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, you're trained. Uh, it's the most valuable thing you own. It's very expensive to buy it. Uh, it's the biggest single expenditure many people ever do a musician, you know, is to buy their instrument. So I think what happened was they went back to their cabins to get their instruments, to try to save their instruments. Because maybe they would have been saved and they, they didn't want their instruments to go down. Uh, that's what I would have done. I would never have left my instrument in the cabin. So I would have gone and gotten it. And then they... They just decided to meet at a certain place. So they all met back and they all were there and all had their instruments, except the two pianists. But they wanted to hang together. They wanted to stay together. I think each of those men probably did it for a slightly different reason. They could have, there wasn't just one thing. But I think for the most part, if you know you're going to die, and they did know they were going to die. They made absolutely no attempt to get into any lifeboat and they knew they were going to die. So they wanted to go down and doing what they love. So they just got their instruments out and were playing to soothe themselves. Maybe. That could be soothing. I mean, what else would they have been doing? I mean, they would have been not able to get in the boats most likely, as you said, initially they may have gotten their instruments because, Hey, we might get saved. But as the night went on, people started to see that there weren't enough boats and there were too many people and it was too late. Now I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm hoping you agree to do, but since you are a magnificent flute player, I was going to ask if you could perhaps think of one of the songs that that orchestra might've been playing that night in 1912. I'm, I'm not sure we know what songs they were playing. Maybe we do, but could you, provide us with maybe a little bit of music from your flute that might reflect what the people on that ship might have been hearing, including your great grandmother, as they were scrambling for the lifeboats and just generally trying to face really death and the fear of the unknown. Sure, I would love to. I'd be happy to do that. Yes, yeah, so the piece that I would uh, like to play for you is a piece by a female composer named Cecile Chaminade. And I was familiar with her music as classical flutist because she wrote a very famous piece for flute. And so I was excited when I read some research that said that a piece that she had written was actually for piano originally called Autumn, might have been one of the last pieces that the band played uh, on that night. And it became a pop tune, actually, in 1912. And uh, she always used this tune as an encore. And it was usually the last thing she played. The audiences loved this melody. So when I found out that this was possibly one of the pieces played, and maybe even the last piece that they played, um, of course, I... I found it and uh, I just recorded it with uh, a friend of mine and it was quite popular in April of 1912 and very, very well could have been played that night. Mm -hmm. 
Shelly, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome, James. It was my pleasure. Shelly, let me ask you this question. How has your connection to the Titanic through your great-grandmother's life, as well as your own research into the Titanic, impacted who you are now? It's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. Um, there's, you know, this research that says there's this kind of a trauma that can go through generations and that it can be experienced generation after generation after generation. I do feel very connected to it. And I do think it has affected me um, in a kind of a traumatic way. Um, I feel very close to her to that event. And, uh, you know, I, I just had my head down and was working feverishly all my life and didn't really accept, you know, every time something happened around the ship, they would contact my family. It was always newspapers and can you do this? Can you do that? And I didn't really think about it. We always had the same old tired jokes in the family. But then my husband in 2012 gave me like a model of the Titanic, a beautiful wooden model. And it was such a moving, shocking, unexpected gift. And it suddenly just lit a fire under me to research and to really go deeper into the story. And uh, I just started reading, reading, reading. And the more I read about it, the more uh, kind of horrified I was, you know, that we used to joke about my grandmother's name mm. and, you know, all of these things and how truly horrific this story was um, and about the trauma. And then, you know, just learning about, you're reading her accounts and reading how she got out and how, what a, a truly tough person she mentally, she must have been. And then you know, reading about how affected she was that when she was giving birth to my grandmother, she was kind of mad and raving. You know, they put this name on her, her daughter's birth certificate and how she had to fight her way back, you know, and the story became so poignant, so moving to me. And then the more I, I read about it and getting to know, going to Titanic conventions myself and meeting people who are so engaged in the story, who have no family connection at all. But I've never seen people so bonded to anything as they are to the ship. And um, getting to know them and, and learning more and more and more. And, and frankly, at this point, I guess I can say I'm a Titaniac too. Right. I, because even if I had nobody on that ship or no connection to it, I would still be a Titaniac. It, the story is so amazing and then i i had this opportunity to teach this class on a subject of or a hobby of mine which they were asking tenured professors to do and you would submit a proposal and so i'm like you know why don't i do this i can do research and you know we can learn things 
And then I, I used these classes that I was teaching to do these little experiments about what it actually was like to be lifted, you know, nine and a half feet carrying a, a 20 pound infant and, and all of these things. And so I think she got a lot calmer the farther away from the ship she got. And the closer to the ship I've gotten, I've gotten much closer to her trauma. That makes sense. It really does. Well articulated. What you I said. Think, I think, I, you know, I never thought about how lucky to be alive I am. Mm -hmm. Never considered that. I don't think my sister has. I don't think my mother did or my grandmother, you know, how close we came. And what an amazing lady your great grandmother was. I, I want to ask you this, Shelly. What do you think your great-grandmother would have wanted her legacy to be? I think her legacy would have been how hard they fought to get their family to this country and, you know, making them Americans. You know, I, I did seven weeks of volunteer work with the Election Commission, and I wore a pin with all my ancestors. All of them came over between... Um, like 1900 1923 and they're the ones that gave me the right to do that and so I wore them wonderful yeah what a wonderful legacy for your great-grandmother yeah this has been an amazing story it's a journey that has uh, been just so informative to me it, it, it's one thing to read about the Titanic. It's one thing to watch a movie, but to hear a personal family story about that event, even though it's a, you know, a few generations removed, it's part of your family. It's part of your DNA, the whole thing. And I'm just so privileged to be able to sit and talk with you about it. And the fact that you're sharing this with our listeners as well, because, you know, we're called your history, your story, and boy, you couldn't fit the mold any better than anybody else because it is a story. It's your story and it's your family's story. So that's great. Now, Shelly, what are you up to today? What kind of projects do you have going on? Um, well, one of the things that I'm in Norfolk doing, actually, besides visiting my family, is I wanted to go to the courthouse to get some records that I'm missing because I'm writing a book about my great-grandmother and her story. And so I came to... Uh, do some research here. As I said, I'm only interested in primary source material. I, I think being an academic kind of um, led me in that direction. Yeah. And also knowing these Titanic researchers who they're, they're all so incredible and they want the story to be so accurate. And so I want to do them proud and make sure I don't get the story wrong. There's so much misinformation about my family. And about her story, you know, on the internet and in books that I've read, it's astonishing to me how inaccurate it really is. And so I, I'd really like to have all my ducks in a row, all my research, all my primary source research. And of course, I have, you know, her photo albums. There's no photos really of her and um, my grandmother, all of her children growing up and grandchildren and um, I want to share that with the Titanic community because they've been so kind. They are just an 
awesome, awesome bunch of people. And uh, I really, they're, they clamor for anything like this, family photos and family stories and family papers and, and the truth. And uh, I really want to uh, get some of these stories like the name Axman, which is, it was just a ruse, but you see it on all these websites. And stuff. It's not true. Um, but to try to really tell an accurate account of what happened to her as best I can, leaving out the things I don't know that can't be known. I think one Don Lynch said to me, because I was really upset, you know, that I couldn't find out definitively what room she was in, what cabin she was in, or what lifeboat she was in. And finally, he said to me, look, you're going to just have to settle on the, the fact that you may never know the truth. You may never accurately know what cabin she was in or what lifeboat she was in, but that's okay. She got into one. So I'm gonna tell the story and I'm gonna tell it as accurately as I can, as truthful as I can to honor these Titanic historians who only allow the truth about the ship that can be proven to be told. At the same time, I want to show how my, she did overcome this. My family did go on and have this, you know, wonderful family, show the pictures, tell the story. Um, I think my, my great grandparents love story. I mean, because that's what it is. Yeah, it's a love definitely. story. And to tell it is so interesting and so compelling about stuff that happened even when they got here and stuff that she went through uh, while she was here. And people are interested in Titanic survivors. So I want to tell her story. I, that's my main goal right now is to do it and to do it as accurately as possible, leaving out. That's what's going to be hard because people are saying, why didn't you put that in there? Why should you put this in there? Because I couldn't prove it. Hmm. Couldn't prove it. So the only thing that's going to go in that book is the truth. Hmm. And I will have all the sources to prove it. And that's why, just to plug this book one more time, I get nothing from it. but if you want to read a really accurate book, and this is what I'm kind of basing my book on, is On a Sea of Glass, because they only use primary source research. And they list all of their sources in the back in these appendices, which are half the book. And um, that's what I want to do. And then also I want to do a show, a speaking kind of show, where I show slides and talk about the story and play my flute. So kind of interspersed between telling the story and showing the pictures, playing. Would you like that to coincide with the release of your book? That'd be great. I would love to do that. And I would love to share her story and, you know, be able to go and play. And wow. so. Here, Shelly, you've got to let me know as soon as your book is out, because what we'll do is we'll make sure we put the link to your book and sort of reissue your podcast and get the word out. And I'd love to know when this happens, if you're going to be out there and playing and, and telling your story, my wife, Kelly, and I would love to get into our car and, and come down or fly down to see you because it is a very, very interesting story. It's a very inspirational story about courage and people facing their fears. And uh, also, you know, as a person who loves history, I have so much respect for you for wanting to not just be 
you know, tell a great story, but to also stick to the truth because it's a disservice to people in the future, particularly historians, to make up stuff because there's missing information. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I feel I owe it to the legacy of that ship and to all the people, the 1,496 people who died and all of the 712 people who survived, I owe it to every single one to tell only the accurate truth as best I can. Thank you again, Shelly. This has been a really incredible journey that we've taken with you here on this podcast. And I really wish you the best in all your future endeavors. And I hope you have a really great day. Thank you, James. I've enjoyed every moment of this. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.